0: Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple of data points. We use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor is with us this week in Heathrow Airport. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So, we're going to be doing something more from the news and actually... Before I get to that data point, uh, I, I just wanted to mention our upcoming live show in Berlin. I've mentioned this the past couple of weeks, but it turns out that the tickets are all sold out. So thanks for everyone who is coming out. We were surprised ourselves by how quickly the tickets went. So next time, maybe we'll look for a bigger venue and maybe we'll look to come to other cities. So let us know if you're interested in us coming around to where you live. But yeah, back to that data point. The data point is 3.7 trillion dollars that is the total amount of assets that belong to JP Morgan Chase Bank. Among those assets are now those that used to belong to First Republic Bank, a major US bank that JP Morgan Chase acquired in late-night negotiations mediated by the US Federal Reserve last weekend because First Republic was otherwise on the precipice of failure. It was an event that put a spotlight on the possibility of a broader banking crisis in the United States, but it also put a spotlight on the special role in the US economy, and thus the world economy, played by J.P. Morgan Chase. It's not the first time, after all, that Chase has stepped in to purchase a distressed bank, uh, most prominently in the great financial crisis of 2008 when it uh, bought Bear Stearns and Washington Mutual, also transactions that were mediated by the U.S. government. So, yeah, we thought we would dig into the special role here played by J.P. Morgan Chase. So, Adam, when J.P. Morgan negotiates to take over a bank like First Republic, I mean, what exactly does this kind of negotiation look like? Obviously, this doesn't seem like a straightforward market exchange not least again because the government is so involved so how does it even get decided what the price is or is this really ultimately not about price at all are there other criteria that come into play in which case is it wrong to think of these kinds of rescue operations as a purchase at all
1: well you're right in the sense that in the very first instance the key thing to do is to get a deal done um because the big worry about a substantial bank failure like this and we shouldn't be under any illusions these are big bank failures that we've been dealing with so washington mutual silicon valley first republic is i believe the second largest bank failure in the history of the u.s um these are huge um, breakdowns in financial confidence um you know these are relatively speaking regional banks and so containing the fallout from that is the is the key is the key issue. There are different ways of doing that. You you could attempt to kind of re, what's called resolve this, essentially um, declare the bank bankrupt, shut it, and and um, hand the depositors over to the tender mercies of the FDIC, or you could broker a deal. Essentially, and in the last week of April, it became clear that something had to be done for First Republic. JP Morgan had been involved since the beginning in the year in trying to mobilise support for it. It became clear that that was not going to work that the run on the bank was too substantial. And then really a, a process of negotiation goes on with the question being who's going to pay what for which bits, is there anyone who's actually interested in buying any of it, and how much is ultimately going to end up on the balance sheet of the FDIC, which is funded by contributions, essentially insurance payments by the banks, which are ultimately of course levied on the depositors and the shareholders of the US banking system. So that is the state that we were in by the end of last, uh, the the last week of April Um, and over the the last weekend of April a a regular kind of bidding process almost like an auction emerged so the FDIC set up a data room and the FDIC invited uh, bids from I think a dozen banks altogether in the end there were only three major contenders of which J.P. Morgan was by far and away the largest. PNC and Citizens were the other two that were in the running. Citizens, I don't know if you you may remember from Yale days, Cam, that's one of the sort of East Coast banks. Um, PNC mm. was backed by private equity. Um, so it's out of that that J.P. Morgan really emerged as the as the clear winner. Um, it did so in part because um, um, it offered to do what none of the previous uh, bailouts had really that the FDIC has had to broker since the beginning of the year really enabled, which is that that J.P. Morgan essentially swallowed First Republic whole. It It didn't haggle hard with the FDIC over which bits it was going to take. It was willing to take the entire First Republic balance sheet onto J.P. Morgan's books. The FDIC at this point is driven by, that is at the moment when we've decided we're going to do a deal and sell First Republic to another bank, is under the terms of the 1992 law governing the fdic mandated to secure the deal which is the least cost solution for the fdic so they have limited degree of discretion in discriminating between the back the offers and jp morgan which mobilized a team of 800 people that were working round the clock that basically cancelled the weekend was in a position to make the offer that from the point of view of the fdic was the most generous one and that's what, in the end, clinched the deal. That they went through two rounds. So the FDIC declared the first set of offers inadequate, asked them to resubmit, which is why the deal wasn't finally clinched until the early hours of of the of the morning on, on the Monday. Um, and I, the problem I here, cl-
0: yeah. Can I clarify this at, at a moment? So in this moment of crisis, the the criteria really becomes what is best for the government institution that's involved here what and is then, best so, for
1: the FDIC which is yeah. funded through contributions from the um the banks ultimately i see okay and i guess is ultimately backed by taxpayers or is that yeah out- yeah i mean ultimately this is a this is a federal deposit insurance but the way in which it funds itself the way in which it handles its bailout fund um, is is uh, is is through these these contributions so um, it, uh, you know notionally there've been critics of the FDIC, that they should have considered other criteria like whether or not they should sell this bank to j p morgan whether it's not you know whether j p morgan's not big enough because under other legislation in the 90s which liberalized american you know banking mergers and acquisitions j p morgan is banned from simply buying other banks in the united states right once you reach a certain threshold 10% of total deposits the very biggest banks, so JP Morgan, Bank of America, Citigroup, none of them are really allowed to buy other banks um, to grow, Wells Fargo is also in this category. And so the, the way in which they can grow is by organic growth, or by taking advantage of emergencies like this, in which case exemptions operate. And so at that point, the FDIC was able to give JP Morgan the nod to acquire and pick up this bank. And that's, in a sense, the kind of worry here, right, which is that if JP Morgan is willing to make, by far and away, the most generous offer of the three final bidders, you've got to ask yourself why. And from their point of view, one of the attractions of this is that this is a unique opportunity. Crises are unique opportunities for them to grow through purchases and through acquisitions. In the end, if you look into the deal, the, you know, the details of this deal. Um, it's pretty clear that this was substantially, on net, to the advantage of J.P. Morgan. If you look at the, you know, the discounted value of the assets, the risk-adjusted value of the assets, and what they paid for them, we're not talking about huge, you know, margins of profit in this case. Um, it's not like the UBS Credit Suisse deal, which was much more, you know, which was much more in favor of UBS. This is a much smaller bank with much smaller strategic significance, but it does mean that JP Morgan has rounded out its business um, in a in a way which is very attractive for for the firm and of course makes JP Morgan look like you know the kind of fundamental anchor of the US uh, financial system
0: and just so i understand then it's the investors in first republic then who are come out on the short end here i mean yes. if 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 yeah. it the pitches if the pitch that the rescuer is making is primarily targeted at the interest of the FDIC, it just seems like that must be the the kind of
1: interesting. And the here. and the clients of, of of First Republic. So JP Morgan is trying mm-hmm. to pick up First Republic's business. First Republic, like say the Valley Bank, was a bank that dealt largely with high end high net worth, highly attractive customers from JP Morgan's point of view. They're looking to pick up the wealth management business of, of First Republic. Um, so those are the priorities. Yes, the bondholders hmm. and, and uh, shareholders, stockholders in First Republic have, have suffered a, a near total loss. Are they even in the room at all when these yeah. sorts of negotiations are happening? Even First Republic wasn't in the room towards the yeah, end. It was, just between asking, FDIC, yeah. it was just between FDIC and the the bidders. Because the way this worked is that, the, is that First Republic was essentially placed under the control of the FDIC. So it ceased to function for yeah. a brief period of time as an independent bank and was then sold on by the FDIC to to the best bidder
0: so what exactly has put jp morgan in the position to sweep in to acquire so many other failing institutions over the years again first republic is not the only example in a sense this has become a kind of pattern so what has jp morgan done better
1: than other big banks that might have stepped in here yeah, I think it's important to emphasize the significance of this deal. Um, I mean, this really marks the moment. It was already evident in 2008, but it really marks the moment in which JP Morgan moves from being just one of America's big banks to being the big American bank. Right? It is the central player in the system. That has to do with its heft, its size. You you know the number that you the daunting number that you mentioned early on three point seven trillion dollars in assets forty billion dollars in, in annual profits it's a giant it's a giant entity it is also however and this is key a, a universal player so it is a key player in investment banking um, in market making in asset management um, and from the point of view of J P Morgan one of the things that's attractive about this deal with First Republic is that it's hoping to build out its mid-market wealth management business. It already is a top name for extremely high-end clients, but in the the middle range of not the middle. This is a so in the in the in the sorry in the quote unquote middle echelons <laughs> yeah. of American wealth. We're talking about people worth many millions of dollars, hmm. and JP Morgan is trying to trying to expand its grip. I mean, it's got there you know it's not self-evident that it would end up in this position i mean in the early 2000s jp morgan was was not in the you know a top address either in terms of sheer scale citigroup was much larger and investment bank in goldman sachs was a was a bigger name i mean it has got there through a process of, of very determined um concentrated growth in which um the mantra issued by Jamie Dimon, which is to go for size, scale and staying power. This was the central message of his first famous letter to investors in JP Morgan in 2005. Built around a fortress balance sheet means that JP Morgan has been in a position again and again to take advantage of crisis. So um, it has a highly developed relatively speaking risk management culture, which meant that already in 2006, it had spotted some of the issues with mortgage backed securities and began to pull out of that business. That then put it in a position to be the key banking anchor of the financial rescue package of first dealing with Bear Stearns and then with Washington Mutual in the key meeting around the TARP bailout package in which The Federal Reserve and the US Treasury convened America's major bankers. Jamie Dimon was the key speaker from the banking side. And so that position, I mean, the two powerhouses that emerged from 2008 are essentially BlackRock on the asset management side and JP Morgan on the banking side. And those are the two sort of titans of US finance of the last decade or so. So it's not a bank that has not suffered its, you know, uh, uh, embarrassments of its own. It ended up paying gigantic uh, penalties for mis-selling of mortgage-backed assets before 2008, in part through the liabilities it acquired through Bear Stearns and Washington Mutual, which it didn't secure sufficient protection against losses for. And then the, you know, the the debacle of the London Whale trader that lost the bank billions of dollars through a series of, you know, failures of risk management. So it's not. It's like other big financial institutions. It's had its Mm. share of problems, but it has had this this politics, this, this internal politics of minimizing risk as far as possible, building scale, sustaining that scale. And then, if you like, to those who have will be given because in the moments of crisis, it becomes the natural go to stabilizing anchor of the system. And Jamie Dimon is very proactive in taking that role now two times over, both in 2008 and 2020. And so it builds on its strength in moments of crisis like that to expand its expand its grip. Um, and at this point, there's no question at all, I think, that across virtually every sector of the business, it is the dominant financial player in the United States. And, the, you know, to judge by most recent events. In the moment of crisis, the only obvious solution seems to be to further reinforce its position. I mean, it's a bank that also builds on its strengths through investment. So JP Morgan is an extremely heavy investor in tech. It spent $11.5 billion in 2021 um, on, on um, improving its IT systems. So it's a it's a very formidable competitor in the mechanics of operating modern finance.
0: Okay, we'll take a break right here, but stick around and we'll be back to continue talking about JP Morgan Chase Bank. Hey, it's Cam. We know that recent news headlines have been full of wild stories, the rise of authoritarianism, the climate crisis, the list goes on and on. But what if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I recommend What Could Go Right, the acclaimed news podcast offering a weekly dose of optimistic ideas. Each week on What Could Go Right, the Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas discuss the central issues of our era and make the case for progress over pessimism with expert guests like NPR anchor Steve Inskeep and prolific writer and historian Rebecca Solnit. Listen to What Could Go Right every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Have you ever wondered why we call French fries, French fries? Or why something is the greatest thing since sliced bread? There are answers to those questions. Everything Everywhere Daily is a podcast for curious people who want to learn more about the world around them. Every day, you'll learn something new about things you never knew you didn't know. Subjects include history, science, geography, mathematics, and culture. If you're a curious person and want to learn more about the world you live in, just subscribe to Everything Everywhere Daily wherever you cast your pod.
0: So what is the right way to characterize the relationship between JP Morgan and the US government at this point? I mean, it seems like in some ways what we're describing is a kind of para-state actor of some kind, you know, an an adjunct almost of the state when there's a financial crisis uh, and the government needs to step in, it just sort of naturally turns to JP Morgan Chase and JP Morgan reciprocally uh, kind of understands that its role is to is to step in almost in, in these situations. Uh, in some ways, it seems like they're working together <laughs> to advance certain state goals even. So does that make it kind of broadly equivalent to the traditional role played by other institutions in other countries? I'm thinking here of Deutsche Bank in Germany, which has its own history of kind of cooperating uh, with the government on industrial goals. Uh, is that a kind of essentially a way to think about J.P. Morgan Chase these days?
1: I think, I think that seems, broadly speaking, correct, except I'm not sure I would describe it as a para-state agency in the sense that that would imply too much priority for the state. Um, you know, I think I think there is a sort of symbiotic relationship between the U.S. government apparatus, the state structure, and and this key financial player in Wall Street. Um, it's, I think, an open secret that the J.P. Morgan has been dealing very closely with the U.S. Treasury, with the Fed, and between Jamie Dimon and, and President Biden. I think there's a direct line that uh, that's open on both ends. Uh, throughout the last months of crisis, it's 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 quite clear that there's a that there's a there's a there's a powerful political connection there, um, and it goes deeper than merely crisis management. Um, it goes to the the heart of the management of the most important financial market which is the treasury market where JP Morgan is far and away the most important uh, broker-dealer in making the market for US treasuries Um, and to this extent it truly is a successor to the classic uh, European um, lead banks uh, that emerged from the 19th century. They're, in fact, increasingly rare. I mean, Deutsche Bank no longer plays that role hmm. um, in um, in Germany. You'd be hard-pressed to identify a UK bank that played that role as well. Um, the most obvious analogue is somewhere like France, where Paribas and the BNP and the and the, the French Treasury have an extraordinarily close connection all the way down, down to the present. I mean elsewhere you might have to go as far as, well, Hong Kong, where Standard Chartered and HSBC are symbiotic with the, the Hong Kong Military Authority and then and then obviously to China. I'm not I don't think it's it's sensible to to draw excessively close comparisons, but certainly JP Morgan has Slid into a role that makes it de facto that kind of player, and in a sense, that's you know that's not where it was twenty to thirty years ago. Though though its position in the treasury market was already very important. I mean, if you go back a hundred years, its its relationship with the the federal government was in fact really rather antagonistic at times, notably under President Wilson during World War One, and, and J.P. Morgan acted as a kind of de facto leader of Wall Street almost against the fed at the the newly emergent fed at the time so this 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 relationship is is kind of actually kind of new in that sense it's a new 21st century sort of symbiosis between and really post 2008 that jp morgan has assumed this absolutely central all purpose role um in the in the us financial system
0: just to extend the analogy a little bit i mean is it that JP. Morgan and the government uh, in Washington actually coordinate on policy goals? or is there just happened to be like an overlap in their respective interests? I, I realize that's maybe a kind of semantic difference. but it does seem like relevant if we're describing them as sort of really cooperating or, um, yeah, just sort of
1: happenstance allies I think I think in the recent banking crisis, it's clear that there has been, Corporation, And the same was true in 2008. If you look at the call sheets from the cell phones of the leading actors on both sides, you'll see that they're basically talking several times a day during the crisis and making sure that everyone understands what everyone else is going to do. And this goes all around like First Republic when it was desperately trying to stay alive as an independent bank. Uh, employed a whole bunch of people who were prominent in the Obama administration in the hope that they would have access to the Biden team and and enable their case to be made. So, you know, at this point... That's, everyone... in, that's in
0: a crisis, right? I mean, yes. and, and, but, but in terms yeah. of like setting broader strategy oh, no, for I U.S. economic policy...
1: Uh, no, I don't think that's a zone necessarily of close coordination. Though, I mean, there's continuous dialogue between the Fed, the Treasury and the White House and key actors in American business. Um, but the Fed in particular will be quite careful about ring fencing its key decision making, because so much money hinges on the trades that are made around Fed decisions. So there are sort of firewalls that have to be maintained, because otherwise, the market would just become completely disorderly, because everyone will be speculating about what, you know, who knew what about which aspect of the Fed's decision making. So there's a there's a complex line that has to be trodden there. But if you go back to, for instance, the late 90s and early 2000s on relations with China, it's quite clear that there were very close relations between Wall Street, then of course, quite often represented in the Treasury at the highest level by CEOs of Goldman Sachs, both you know um, Robert Rubin and, and uh, Hank Paulson. Um, I don't think we're quite in in that level of, of symbiosis right now but the crisis really forges a a relationship which to a degree is embarrassing for both sides right the jp morgan doesn't want to look like it's a creature of the american state though diamond declares himself a red-blooded patriot at any given you know any given moment and certainly the biden administration doesn't want to look as though it's in the pocket of the of jp morgan
0: so this special role that jp morgan plays in the us economy swooping in at times of crisis uh to uh restore some stability. I mean, could JP Morgan conceivably play a similar role internationally? Um, And and would it if it could? I mean, what are the barriers to JP Morgan expanding this role across borders internationally.
1: Well Diamond does boast of the fact that JP Morgan banks both the IMF and the World Bank. So at that level it functions as the as the house bank. But I mean the, the the crucial thing to understand is just the relative size of the of the American banking system as opposed to the world banking system and the relative fragmentation of the of the of the American banking system within which JP Morgan is the top dog. So of the top ten banks globally by assets at the end of 2021 of the top 10 globally, only two were American, JP Morgan and Bank of America, which were respectively in the four, five slot or in Bank of America's case, in the seventh spot. So in the top 20, the banks globally, only four are American, right? The leading the banks by size now today are, are Chinese banks, and they are by no means confined anymore to doing business only in China. Um, amongst Western banks, J.P. Morgan is the largest by a margin—not a gigantic margin—but you know there are a large number of European and Japanese banks that rank alongside the U.S. If you look at just the top hundred banks in the world and their assets, the U.S. has about sixteen to seventeen trillion dollars. China's biggest banks have twice as many assets, and the European banks, if you aggregate them, especially if you add in the U.K. banks, are larger. In terms of assets than the US ones. So that's the way you've got to understand this, that the the American banking system is strikingly fragmented still. So it could have a much more concentrated banking system than it does. It still has a relatively fragmented one with more than 4000 banks operating, which is very untypical for a, uh, say, uh, for Europe relative to the size of the economy. And so J.P. Morgan is very much first amongst equals amongst America's banks and sitting in New York and close to the Fed, of course, in the dollar system, it occupies a key position and within the U.S. Treasury market, respectively. But it's very much by way of its position within the U.S. system that it has the prominence that it does. I mean, it's not, you know, like a HSBC or a standard childhood, a bank which is constitutively global in the the way that they are. And so I, I think it's it is the epitome of a nationally based financial actor with huge reach as a result of the extension of the dollar system. But no, there's no way in which you would see it emerging as I think, you know, the the, the, the kind of dominance it has nationally on a global scale, even within the West, I think would be would be very surprising to see.
0: It does also raise the question whether, at moments of economic crisis, the kind of national allegiances themselves play a role. I mean like it, one one notices that during this uh, banking crisis in the US no one no one even came upon the thought of a Chinese bank coming into uh, you know to 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 yeah. save one of these ailing banks and and I guess the same goes vice versa. I mean you know I guess it, it, at a moment of economic crisis in another country the idea of a US bank coming in to play savior might itself be controversial. I, I imagine
1: it would be. I mean, if a US bank had offered to take a serious interest in Credit Suisse, the and um, the Swiss might have actually been quite relieved, to be honest, not to have to sell it to UBS. Hmm. Certainly, in two thousand and eight, a whole range of foreign options were considered. Korean money was important. Japanese money was at various hmm. points touted around. It was the only reason why European actors, you know, were not in the very first row was because they they were in such trouble. But Barclays fished in troubles waters at that point and and um sold bits of its business and then looked at buying bits of of uh, American firms um no there is there isn't there's an openness to international you know restructuring at moments like this for for a chinese bank to to step in would would be a whole different kettle of fish i think in geopolitical mm. terms um it's more i think that in moments of crisis like this it's hard to you know it, 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 isn't, it isn't a moment necessarily which in which people are enthusiastic about picking up the the pieces. And J.P. Morgan is taking a risk with, with First Republic. It's one that it's very carefully hedged out, but it's nevertheless one in which it's taking the risks. And it's not for nothing that Bank of America, for instance, didn't make a more a competitive bid. So we've been talking
0: a lot about the relationship between these big financial actors, specifically J.P. Morgan, and the world of politics. And... This reminds me about how it seems like every few years there are rumors about J.P. Morgan CEO, Jamie Dimon, running for president. I just wonder, yeah, does this relationship between J.P. Morgan and politics extend potentially to electoral politics? Could you ever imagine Dimon actually being in a position to win a major election of
1: that kind? Yeah, I mean, apparently he took it very seriously in 2018 and engaged in some pretty robust sparring with Trump at the time right the two of them kind of snarking at each other and mm. diamond saying that you know he'd earned his, his money and hadn't had it from his daddy like uh, like trump had and uh, trump going on about whether or not diamond had the smarts to to uh, to you know uh, hold down the presidency as a job i mean it was pretty it was pretty extraordinary sort of new york Kind of dogfight that was going on there. That there may indeed have been some polling that was done on the part of Diamond's team. I mean, he's, you know, he's certainly a man of means, and that's the kind of thing that he could he could um he could indulge himself in. He's a, he's a man who's achieved everything there is to achieve in the American financial world. So so he must be looking around for new challenges, perhaps at that level. I mean, there's speculation that he's just going to go on and on and on that J.P. Morgan, despite his. A variety of health scares i i think that the fundamental problem is for somebody like diamond is that on the one hand you know the the republican party that on the face of it might be seen to be his natural home um as a banker has become extremely hostile to a figure like like diamond i mean that's just a space that that he can't really seriously contend in and um though at least at times i know he's been a registered democrat he he um there's no way in his own terms that he he could beat the liberal side of the democratic party. And so, um, I mean, this is the dilemma I think of sort of centrist business opinion in the United States is that it's become somewhat homeless in political terms. Um, and I think diamonds are fairly, you know, clear expression of that. It's just not, just not clear where they, where they fit within the American party political system. Um, So, you know, he indulges Mm. himself in letters to investors in which he discusses a whole variety of things from, you know, education to infrastructure spending and so on. But uh, it's very hard to see where he would fit in the American party political system currently. I mean,
0: yeah, maybe more realistic that he would sort of be nominated as. Treasury Secretary, maybe maybe that's more
1: conceivable.
0: Uh, I don't know yeah. if there's examples of someone just getting plucked from the the top of the finance industry into oh, yeah.
1: regularly all of them. I mean, you know, for mm-hmm. a while, for a while this was so common that Tim Geithner, when he was made Treasury Secretary, he was widely suspected of having been, you know, yeah. a lifelong Goldman Sachs employee when in fact he'd done nothing better than be a civil servant all his life. It just, you know, it had just become so much the norm that Treasury Secretaries came from from um, the banking world. Um, but again, I think in the current moment, that's most improbable. I think somebody like a Hank Paulson um, would be an embarrassment for the Biden administration, given the extraordinary pivot in economic policy mm. that we've seen um, since 2021.
0: Yeah. And in some ways, maybe that fight between Trump and Diamond itself was telling. I mean, there's sort of obviously Trump is a businessman of his own, but uh, a different kind of businessman, maybe uh, uh, not exactly representing global finance well this is the
1: thing i think that trump that trump you know is a businessman but we we really need to differentiate one of my favorite jamie diamond quotes is the line where he said that you know to run his business you needed a you needed a psychiatrist and a lawyer and i think that goes to the heart of you know the complexities of running very large american corporates the entire world of property development casinos private equity that's an entirely incredibly self-indulgent realm of business where you know the owners can basically set their own terms and the same goes for the you know the little baron who runs a chain of car dealerships or something like that but if you are if you're a corporate statesperson, yeah you need a lawyer and you need a shrink to to get through your day and that's mm. very much diamond's world i think i mean he's you know a fairly edgy speaker he'll, he'll make off the cuff remarks that that um you know cause the pr people at jp more considerable difficulty now and then but um but uh exactly that kind of figure um that doesn't really fit in a populist canon of the right but is also fundamentally um, unpalatable for the democratic party left i think mm-hmm. has a hard time now of finding a slot in the, the american political system
0: got it yeah i mean as far as i can tell trump could also use a uh, psychiatrist and lawyers but, but for very different reasons. in different ways yeah in different <laughs> ways in different ways um but i do think we need to leave it there for now Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It is produced by Laura rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tady. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested not just in Adam Twos, but news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Ones and twos listeners even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code twos at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love hearing your feedback. You can send us voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com, or you can email us, podcasts at foreignpolicy.com, or tweet us, that's at onesandtwospod. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week.